Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another week of the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. As we fly into the ninth year and towards 400 episodes, a, a really interesting one today. So during the pandemic, there was all of these allegations of censorship, mostly coming from interests that represented poor scientific ideas or untested hypotheses. And these gained a lot of traction and really misled and misdirected us uh, through the pandemic. And claims of remedies, claims of risks, they were everywhere in, in various social media and traditional media outlets. They felt a responsibility to stem the flow of false information that could negatively have an impact on, peg, on public health. So we heard all these claims of censorship that were coming from the people promoting bogus therapies and rather colorful origin stories. But a lot of organizations held fast and said, we're not going to promote false information. And then the good news. So science had an opportunity to get a fast start. It was out of the blocks very quickly. And the research came fast. It came furious, start from the beginning in 2020. But it never could quite keep up with the wave of false information that could be published or promulgated based upon just some claim without any evidence backing it up. However, there were a number of physicians, scientists, and others, maybe even me, that did a fantastic job at countering the false information in social media. However, this led to tremendous harassment, even personal peril. So what happens when folks try to step in to correct bad science, and then the good science actually becomes silenced? And that's what we'll talk about today. We're speaking with Dr. Lonnie Besanson. He's an assistant professor in the Media and Information Technology Department at Linköping University in Norrköping, Sweden. So welcome to the podcast, Lonnie. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I was really excited to read about this on Twitter. That's what we originally connected. And I learned more about this and figured this would be of great interest to this audience. So let's start out with your, the, the folks who you've been working with on these projects. You, you've worked with a group to respond to false information around the COVID-19 pandemic. And how many people are on this team and, and where do you do most of your corrections? So I guess uh, you're probably familiar with this, right? Like, um, you know, interacting with, with other scientists on Twitter, like seeing some of the bad science being shared and trying to, to react to it. This is how it all started. And we have a couple of groups, uh, but we have this one core group, I would say, of people that are mostly based in France. We're speaking French, uh, that have been really working hard to counteract some of the misinformation on, on COVID. So we're a group pretty much like of 10-ish people that interact daily on, on a lot of topic. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily COVID related. We just share a lot of science, a lot of things we do as well, uh, because we're not all from the same domain either. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Um, so yeah, it's, most of our interactions are through Twitter. Uh, we have a group where we share uh, what we do, what we find, uh, some of our doubts about the science that's been recently published, um, things like this. 
And what is the background of most of the people on the team? Is it just various scientific disciplines? Yeah, so it's it's really quite um, like diverse uh, set of people. So I'm I'm more working in, for instance, data visualization, human computer interaction. So I'm more on the computer science side of things uh, and statistics a little bit. Um, um, we have a person that's an oncologist on the team. Um, we have two people that did a PhD a while back, but have now left academia and they're they're teaching both of them. Uh, we have like really people like. Most of them are still in the medical field, right? Or in chemistry or biochemistry. Uh, but they are reading various disciplines. I can't even describe what they're doing because, you know, like it's a, it's quite a diverse set of people. Uh, but it's, um, I think that's where we get the strength as well, that we, we try to bring like our own expertise to the table to try and counter what we can see in different studies. And we complement each other a little bit. Now, that's really cool. I, I love correction of false information and I try to do a lot of it myself, but I do it by following specific hashtags in my area of expertise. And when I see really bad information, I just put a little bit out there like, hey, maybe you better think twice before following this or something like that. And it's really fulfilling because I really do think it changes people's minds. Have you really had that sense that you're making a difference? Yeah, I guess it's a it's a tricky, tricky question, right? Because the pandemic has been so, you know, like intensely charged like really it, it, it's a it's a mix of everything right there's politics involved there's because it's public health so it's 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 a complicated question i i'm pretty sure some of the responses we've made either publicly like through twitter on threads or like you know things like this or youtube videos uh, have changed some people's minds because we we get feedback from people that are actually very happy to hear from us and you know to not just get this one-sided version of, of, of science uh, that they get from often conspiracy theorists. Um, so they're quite happy to get sources from us discussing things and sometimes to even change their mining and get a, you know, get a vaccine. And it's pretty amazing. Like we got a couple of people actually saying that uh, in our DMs, which was pretty cool. Um, but then of course, you know, the majority of our interactions are with the hardcore anti-vaxxers uh, that are, you know, they actually, it's kind of funny, you said you follow specific hashtags, right? Like. I usually don't even try to find the studies that I bad because the people that uh, want to try and, you know, like um, put us on the spot and say, oh, I see you're wrong. They send it to us directly. Um, so the bad science is sent to us by conspiracy theorists, which I think is kind of fun. Uh, it's a fun way of interacting with it. Yeah. The fun part is, is that they oftentimes read titles and don't read the whole paper. So it'll say something like, uh, you know, the dangers of the COVID vaccine with a question mark. and uh, and then they'll send this to you. And then it's basically a paper saying, look, it's safe. It works. Uh, you, you ever see this kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. That has happened a lot, obviously. Uh, or, you know, like sometimes preaching through their own choir kind of, and like sharing a paper by, you know, truncating bits that actually don't really tell the story that they want. Uh, they also do that quite a lot. Um, but yeah, it has happened frequently, but you know, the, the, the bad papers, and I guess this is what we're going to talk about today, the bad papers that they've, that they've to us is also how we started this whole like idea of debunking and trying to to correct uh the the science that was a little bit misleading out there yeah and, th and that's really where we're going to go today because i this is a really interesting story i became aware of the situation around a paper that was published in food and chemical toxicology which is the famous journal that also had carried the original seralini paper and but this is a pretty good journal isn't it yeah i mean it it has a good impact factor for 
you know, for what it's worth, I'm, I'm not a big believer in impact factors. Let's put it like this. I think it's a, it's a very biased measure, but it is still a measure of something and it has a pretty good impact factor. Hey, it published a certain paper, as, as you said, it's, that was a pretty bad one. But other than that, I think it's known to publish robust uh, scientific evidence. So it was a little bit odd, you know, like bizarre to, to see this paper. Uh, published there, like uh, the the one that we're going to talk about today, it was it was very bizarre. Like we we really couldn't believe when we read it that it actually passed peer reviews in this journal. Yeah, so that's what's so weird to me too, because this is a kind of even a historical journal. It's got a lot of good gravitas. And so, what was the title of the paper and uh, that you know did, that you responded to? And uh, could you tell a little bit about what the claims were the authors were making? Um, yeah, uh, so the title is, uh, uh, let me find it. Yes. Um, innate immune suppression by SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccinations, the role of G quadruplexes, exosomes, and microRNAs. Uh, <laughs> so that was published in June, 2022. Uh, and the authors are Stephanie Senefer, Greg Nye, I suppose, uh, Anthony Karyakopoulos and Peter McCullough, which, uh, I guess an American audience would be familiar with. Yeah, the American audience is familiar with two of those folks, and uh, I don't know. Do you do you know anything about Greg Nye or uh, Anthony Kirikopoulos? No, I, I, I like it was they were completely new to me. Never heard of them before. But then again, I'm not in the field, right? Like the, I have this outsider perspective from it, so I'm probably yeah. not the best person to ask this question. But uh, I don't think they're as let's say renowned as the other two. Like the first offer and the last offer, Stephanie Seneff and Peter McCullough. Yeah. So, uh, do you do you have any insights on uh, on Senefer McCullough at all? Um, I mean, Senefer knew from from a, a little bit before because uh, I knew there, I knew there was some controversies around the the, the papers that uh, that she published before, right? Because she she was initially like me in in computer science, but then uh, she started publishing uh, also medical papers, which uh, apparently were quite controversial. Um, I think the, the, I have the Wikipedia page here and it, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I'm going to quote, um, the articles have received heated objection from experts in almost every field she's dealt into. Um, <laughs> so I was not aware of all the controversies, but I had heard of some of them. Um, and uh, I think this covered paper is definitely a new one to, to the list of controversial papers that Stephanie Sinek published. Yeah, I've I've met her in person and I've been to multiple events where she was uh where I was brought in as a scientific expert and she was brought in as the counter expert. And it's it's really amazing because she will say in an audience, in my laboratory at MIT, we found out that glyphosate causes autism. And she doesn't really reveal that her laboratory is Google. And it's it's one of these things that the articles that she writes have a very similar feel. They are not research papers. They are reviews, these kind of long rambling reviews that selectively cherry pick information from legitimate scientific papers and assemble them in ways that tells the story she once told. And, and I think this, this article that was written here about innate immune suppression fits the brand exactly. And, and, and who's Peter McCullough? Uh, so Peter McCullough I heard about before because he had, he had this very strong stance against vaccines, COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, I know that he got 
uh, and I'm saying that from memory, but uh, it's a medical license revoked as well recently. Uh, so it apparently delved into quite a lot of misinformation online, which which prompted that. Um, no, I think you're right on. You're right on. He he blocked me preemptively. <laughs> I tried following him on Twitter and I couldn't. So, so I, I took that as a badge of honor. Yeah, he he also has been a pretty extreme purveyor of false information on social media, and and uh, and so having this author team and and Greg Nye, I never heard of before, but he is a um, uh, has a clinic in Oregon that does naturopathic oncology, so uh, treating your cancer with uh, magical treatments, and. Um, uh, Anthony Kirkopoulos, I, the only thing I could find on him was that he was a natural products scientist. And uh, he has a, a bit of a scientific publication record that I think you could uh, consider has some credibility in some areas. But es- essentially, this article that was written and published, this went through peer review? Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. Uh, and that's the bit that's surprising, right? Uh, because... Um, but I mean, it's, it, as you said, right, it, it is a, a review, uh, a narrative review, as some people say, which I think is a very interesting way of framing things. So they, they're telling a story and reviewing the related work at the same time or the literature at the same time. And, but they're, they are telling a story and that's essentially their story that they're, that they're telling here. And, um, yeah, this went through peer review, um, a quite fast peer review, um, I would say. I don't have the dates in mind, but like we're talking, like you know, a couple of weeks at best. Uh, for a manuscript that's extremely long that contains more than two hundred references, um, that was yeah, that was surprising. Huh. Yeah, I see. It was received on February 9, twenty two. Revised by April third. Revised by April third. So it was uh, reviewed and sent back um, and accepted April 8th. So three days later was, uh, accepted and online, uh, five days later, uh, on April 15th or 10 days, seven days later. And, uh, what's really interesting about that is that, as you say, a very long narrative paper. And I just wish I knew who the reviewers were because anybody who was even remotely critical would have been blowing whistles all over this thing. And it really amazes me. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I've made the case in previous papers, including one on, on COVID-19 or on analyzing COVID-19 transparency uh, or rather the lack of transparency in, in COVID-19 research. Uh, I've made the case that, that you know, peer review reports should at least be accessible, like maybe with names, maybe without, but at least we should get the reports, um, which of course we didn't get for that paper. Uh, but I was really surprised at the speed. Like we're talking like, yeah, six weeks for the office to get the reviews and revise the paper, something like this. This is this is quite phenomenal. I mean, it, it happens quite rarely, especially for such a long manuscript. We're not talking like a manuscript is like, you know, something like 2,000 words. I think it's, it's something like more than 10,000. It's, it's, it's a very long manuscript. Um, I, I remember we counted, but it's, it's a lot more than 10,000. Uh, so I was really, really surprised by this. And I wish we could look at the reviewers' reports on this because I, I, I really want to see what they raised, you know, like how this was reviewed because we have no clue. Yeah, I, I'm guessing it got a pretty soft review. I, I know that as an editor, I sometimes have to wait six weeks before I can find three qualified reviewers. Right. And and so it, it, it struck me strange as well. We're speaking with Dr. Lonnie Besanson. He's assistant professor at Linköping University in Norrköping, Sweden. And this is Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast. Lots more to come on this story in just a moment. 
This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast. I'm speaking with Dr. Lonnie Besanson. He's an assistant professor in the Media and Information Technology Laboratory at Linköping University in Norrköping, Sweden. And uh, we're talking about an article that was published and then uh, criticized, but not in the way that it should have been. So you had this article that was online and you and the group of experts got together and were criticizing uh, what this article was. And you put together a uh, response that you sent to the editor-in-chief. So what was that letter and what was the response? Yeah, so um, exactly as you said, we someone shared this paper with us. We we talked about it. Then we got someone else from the outside of this Twitter group uh, involved. who's a, a professor and also in oncology and pharmacology because uh, we wanted his opinion about this. But our, you know, there, there were a lot of uh, kind of like red flags that we saw because we, we thought it, the paper misrepresented a little bit the literature. Uh, but I'll go more in details after maybe on this. So we just put together a short letter to the editor saying, oh, uh, we read this paper. Um, this is kind of interesting, but also the, the authors are misrepresenting the literature here. And this is, this is clearly not something that can be done. They're speculating a lot. And when they are citing references, they're actually, you know, really cherry picking what they say from these references or sometimes completely misrepresenting what the paper actually states. And this is problematic and that alone, uh, you know, like should should cover enough grounds to, to to just give you a retraction of the paper because there is a misrepresentation of other papers. This is this should be retracted. This is pretty much what we said. Then that to the editor as a well, first we contacted him by email. Then we sent that officially to their system submission system to to as a letter to the editor. Um, and a couple of days, maybe a week or two later, we got uh, we got reviews uh, on this, which is also I don't know how you angle this as an editor in your journal. Uh, Often letters to the editor are not peer reviewed. They can be, you know, like juried. The editor reads and decides whether or not to publish. But in this case, I guess you wanted to to have an external um, point of view. So he asked three reviewers to read through what we sent, which is also, I think, uh, quite a lot of reviewers. But uh, okay, granted, that seems fair. And uh, the response was a little bit surprising. <laughs> um, I don't know if we should go into this right away, uh, but it, it was, um, yeah, we. Not what we expected at all. Uh, there were a lot of things that were, um, I would say, even incorrect. Like that's, I would not expect to see that in peer reviews at all. Um, so basically the response from the editor was that they would be willing to potentially publish a revised version of that letter uh, if we stop asking for the retraction is the first thing. And if we address the other comments of the reviewers, um, and some of them were, okay, maybe like, you know, to, to tone down the statements here and there, fair, all fair enough comments, but we also had very surprising comments. Um, one of the reviewer questioned our expertise directly saying, well, I'm surprised to see people that are not oncologists talking about this paper that talks about cancer. So, uh, and because none of the authors are oncologists either, by the way. 
Exactly. That was the thing, right? Like, and that's exactly so. I, I read this and I was surprised that this past editorial checked, you know, like, um, I'm also a, a, an editor or associate editor for, for, for a journal. And if I see something like this in a review, I'll ask the reviewers to remove it. Like, this is not something you can, you can just put in a review. This is, this is really an argument against who we are, not against what we say. And that shouldn't happen. Right. Um, so I received that and, you know, with the others, I was just like really surprised that this was the kind of response we got, especially because our exchanges with the editor-in-chief so far were very cordial and nice and he wanted to to publish this. So we were really, really surprised. Um, so I, I, I put together a response to this with, with the others. And I remember actually stating this, that while it's interesting that the reviewer questioned our expertise in the domain, because we actually have two oncologists on board, including a professor of oncology, um, Whereas the initial team from the, from the paper, the Seneth article, well, they, they, they don't, right? Uh, <laughs> the, the lead author is a computer scientist. Um, so yeah, why question our expertise when the expertise of the initial paper offers was not questioned? That was very surprising. Yeah, that, was, that really does seem surprising. And I think if I'm an editor-in-chief and I get a legitimate criticism to a paper that has some very blatantly clear problems, I might take pause and say, this affects the credibility of my journal. I at least will publish the letter and let's let the dialogue continue. And yeah. th you know, that's the correct way to do. But what did they tell you? Uh, what, did, what was the response from the editor-in-chief ultimately? So ultimately, they decided to reject the letter uh, because we refused to remove the demand for retraction because, you know, on the grounds of basically, they, they said that they don't want us to ask for retraction because it should be an open academic debate. Uh, to which, okay, fair enough argument, but then I can make an argument in this open academic debate that the paper should be retracted because it is misleading, right? Like this, for instance, in one reference, that's something I remember right right now, is they, they say uh, the literature has found that the vaccine can have a specific effect on a specific hormone, something, something. And they're talking about mRNA vaccines, right? Uh, and then you look at that reference, click on it, you open it, and they're actually not talking about mRNA vaccines in that reference. They're talking about um, the, the, the Chinese uh, vaccine, which is not an mRNA vaccine. So they misrepresented the literature on purpose or not that I don't know, but it still misrepresented the literature. And this is one of the basis for their argumentation. So just for that, the paper should be retracted and we refused to back down from this. We said, well, we can turn down how we present our case, but if the debate should be open, then we should openly be allowed to ask for a retraction. And eventually on the grounds that the debate should be open and the paper shouldn't be retracted, the editor-in-chief just decided to not publish our response. So to, in, in a sense, close down the debate. Yeah, and this is, this is totally the pattern. If you go back through any of her reviews, and this is the lead author, uh, if you go back through any of her reviews, there are all these kind of, uh, it's really a hypothesis. So she comes up with, she comes up with a conclusion and then finds sentences that might be able to fit it and goes through the literature and does a search and finds bits and pieces of articles that if taken out of context or maybe leave a word off or whatever, you actually can create the illusion of support for the hypothesis she's presenting, which she doesn't frame as a hypothesis. She has a conclusion that, is, um, that she attempts to support. It's backward science. And it and yeah. does it by misrepresenting the research that's cited. And uh, one of the first ones that ever came out was back in 2013 
in a uh, journal called Entropy. And, uh, and it was like mo- gate- glyphosate, gateway to modern diseases, talking about the herbicide. And the response was so strong that the journal even put a warning on the abstract that says, um, this is showing significant public or a citation bias, uh, questionable data, whatever they put. It's a very long paragraph that basically says, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing, because it's exactly what you said, right? Like, if you read this paper, the, the conclusion is, and I'm going to quote, I think I'm quoting almost verbatim here, like, um, billions of lives are at risk because of mRNA vaccines. Like, they're not even going for millions, which would already be a massive number. They're going for at least two billions, right? Like, that's a third of the population that would be at risk of cancer right? According to them. This is, you know, this is a very strong conclusion. And it is so interesting to me that we were asked to turn down all our statements in the paper when we're actually show, or in our letter to the editor, when we're actually showing everything that is wrong, we're asked to turn down everything. But then this original paper just goes on and says like, yeah, billions of lives. I mean, come on, you know, like this, this shouldn't happen. Seriously, like how can that pass the review? Just this one sentence should already be a red flag, you know, like, like, okay, maybe you found it as a risk, but like, would it be a, a risk for billions of lives? Come on. Uh, <laughs> there hasn't been a billion people that have had access to the mRNA vaccines that uh, people have used other vaccines, but they've also been protein subunit and uh, other types of vaccines, other traditional types of vaccines that have been used. And so it's, it really does, uh, it, it's so inaccurate for this to be published the way it was. It is. And, and the, the other funny part is the authors even say in the conclusion, we call on public health institutions to demonstrate with evidence why issues discussed in this paper are not relevant to public health or to acknowledge that they are and to act accordingly. And so here they're asking for rebuttal and you provide a rebuttal that's appropriate and, and get shut down. Yeah. And that's, well, mind-boggling, that, right? Yeah. It, well, well that, that the people who are, have been complaining about being shut down have always been kind of these speculative uh, fringe opinions. And here you have legitimate scientific uh, rebuttal that is being kept out of the journal. Yeah, that was okay. very, and you know, like it was, it was just exactly this, like you know, the number of scientists that are publishing this very fringe science that I've heard saying that they're being censored and, and they don't have a platform and all of that. Well, I mean, they do have a platform they are not being censored and debunking what they've done pr- producing rebuttals getting them published getting the rebuttals to get as much traction as their original paper this is the part of hard and this is something we've seen with other people that i've worked with uh, we got a couple of covid 19 papers retracted or showing with expression of concerns um we got a paper rejected from from nature scientific reports for instance but that took that took 10 months you know and the paper got massive attention before like shared something like 35,000 times on Twitter, uh, picked up by 25 news outlets at the very least. Like it was, it was all over the place. And then when we get it retracted, it wasn't just anymore because it's 10 months later. Um, so it doesn't make the, the headlines. No one's talking about it. And it's still seen as valid science because no one has seen the retraction. Oh, that's right. That's very true. And then the parts of it become part of the narrative. Uh, a lot like the Seralini paper where you know, if I, if I publish, uh, if I suggest today on Twitter that the Seralini paper, um, 
was not accurate in, in speaking about cancer because the controls receive cancer too. Someone will post a picture of the rats and say, well, you're wrong because it was published in 2024 or 2014. And it just will, it, this stuff becomes a permanent part of the discourse that we have to keep pushing back against forever. And uh, even the original set of paper on glyphosate, um, I'll say that there's no evidence anywhere that says that this thing causes cancer. And someone will say, oh yeah, what about this? And they'll post that original review that has no original research in it and also shows that expression of concern paragraph. So you did get something published on this eventually. And so what journal did that occur in and, and what exactly did you cover? Yeah, so eventually we managed to get this published. So uh, the, there were a couple of loops there that we had to, to go through, I, I would say. It was, it was very interesting. So as you said, the, the, the original journal, the Food and Chemical Toxicology, did not put an expression of concern on the paper, despite what we raised, did not publish the letter. Uh, there was no, you know, extra info that the paper was being discussed editorially or anything, nothing at all. And eventually they rejected us. And so I, I contacted Retraction Watch about this uh, to explain the whole story. And they invited us to write a guest blog post for them, which we did. Um, and that was shared uh, then online and everything. And we put everything that we've done, the original letter and uh, our, let's say, um, state of mind after being rejected as, as preprints on OSF, right? Like, so our original letter to the editor is on OSF as a preprint, but also what happened through the whole like peer review process we detailed also in a, in a preprint that we put together, uh, because, you know, time is of the essence for this, right? Like this paper had already been shared like so much and we wanted to the traction to start on the other side to try and counterbalance a little bit these, these arguments that were being made against mRNA vaccines. Um, and we reached out to a lot of editors, uh, a lot of different journals saying, well, the, are you interested in, in publishing a rebuttal about this? And of course the answer from any journal at any time is always going to be no, because it's not their problem, right? The paper is published in another journal. Why would they want to publish a rebuttal in their own? That brings nothing. Um, and that's part of the things that we criticize with, uh, a little bit with, uh, Elizabeth Bick, uh, that. I guess you probably know, and uh, maybe the audience knows as well. Um, she's very famous for finding fraud in papers. And we, we put together a small uh, opinion piece once saying that it, it shouldn't be so hard to publish rebuttals. Uh, we should get the credit that, for, for this kind of work because it's a lot of work, but journals are not interested, uh, for, for reasons that I understand. Right. Um, but it was very difficult, but eventually, uh, after asking for so long, we found a journal that was pretty much happy to cover this story if we could like, you know, um, change a little bit how we tell this story. So they wanted to have the rebuttal, but also how hard it was for us to publish this rebuttal. So they were kind of trying to get the, you know, scientific integrity viewpoint, uh, kind of thing, um, which we agreed to do. And so we kind of merged the things that we had done, like, you know, the, the guest blog post, the, the letter and our arguments into this one paper, uh, which is, I don't know, I don't know if you call it a full paper, they, they cut it as an article, but, uh, um, so it's in stem cell reviews and reports, um, and they decided to publish it, but it's almost like nine months after the fact, right? I think we're, we're in November or something and the pa original paper was published in, uh, April. So yeah, seven months. Uh, um, so yeah, that took a while. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and that's the problem is that there's no fast way of responding other than through, say, social media. 
And uh, Twitter is good that way. And it does at least help us get the word out there. But this is a, I think the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast was because it shows that the, uh, the scientific literature has been hijacked by uh, authors who are not playing by the rules and editors and chiefs and reviewers that are letting it happen. And the problem is, well, I'll let you tell me, what do you think the long-term problem is of allowing this kind of thing to happen? I mean, eventually the thing is, and I guess, I guess we all have different viewpoints on this, but you know, the, these, these papers are published in, in prestigious or good journals, right? So they have an impact from the get-go. And because they're so hard to correct, then they stay as, you know, academic records of something that has been proven. And if we don't get them rejected or corrected, because sometimes it can be also an error, right? Like it could be a mistake from, from the authors. Uh, if we don't get them corrected or retracted, then people will build on this. Um, so one, it can infer like fear in, in, in the public, uh, you know, like and, and impact negatively, very negatively public health, which is what we said in our response. Uh, two, it can uh, eventually lead to, to researchers wasting their time trying to reproduce or build upon the results that are presented in this, you know, like weird fringe science. Uh, and three, there's also the problem that the people like, I guess like you and me spend their time trying to debunk that, um, um, you know, like we, like this is not something that I can value in my career at all, right? And I have yearly evaluations and things like this. Um, I can't put that forward uh, at all uh, because who cares in my field that I published in stem cell reviews and reports? Like this is, this is not a, a paper for people in my field. Um, and, you know, it won't get cited in all these measures that I don't care much about, but that obviously the people that employ me care about. Um, so there is an issue that eventually, I mean, why should I continue doing this, right? I'm doing it because I want to, because I love it, but why would any scientist do it? I don't know. Well, here's the problem is that it's actually a negative incentive is that you'll actually see as happened to me is because I was continually stepping into controversial areas and correcting bad information when I saw it, we would get hate mail to the university. We would get oh, yeah. hate mail to... Uh, you know, phone calls to the president. We would get uh, FOIA, Freedom of Information Act requests for public records. And these are extremely onerous. And I've given up like a million pages of email, each one that had to be read by an attorney. And it gets to the point where the university says, we don't like the controversy around this, so maybe you should shut up. And now we're dealing with problems with infringing on academic freedom because we step into telling the truth. And for monitoring the literature, which should be kind of a sacred thing and that we should be keeping as, as clean as we can. And so it, it not only allows bad information to propagate, it actually silences the people who are willing to correct it. Absolutely. I think this is not something that I mentioned, but you're completely right. I mean, beyond the lack of incentives for me to do this kind of thing, uh, which I think, as you just said, it's very important, there's also actually potential negative effects on me or my career or my personal health, right? Like the number of hate mails I got or texts or phone calls even, you know, like from, from people like, I don't know how many times people called me a Nazi because I, I, I corrected bad science on non-pharmaceutical interventions that was saying that it didn't work, but they actually, they had no evidence that it didn't. They just used bogus models and, and then I proved that it was bogus models and then I get hate mails saying I'm a Nazi, uh, you know, and 
I don't mind the occasional hate mail, you know, like I can live with that. But at some point it was, it was, it was almost daily. Right. Um, and yeah, that also, of course, went to my employer and I was always supported by my employer. So there's no problem there, but it could have been a problem, right? Like I didn't know before any of this happened that I would get the support of my employer for things like this. And that's not something that I want to figure out, right? Like I don't want to have to figure this out. I'm just doing what I can to correct and help you know, science as a whole, right? Like to, to bring my little piece to this saying, no, this, we should correct this. This is bad. And then on the same time, I'm doing my research saying, hey, I found this uh, new evidence, a little bit more knowledge on something. What you indicate is exactly what happened here. They had to change my phone number because of all the hate calls that were coming in. And my, my assistant was picking it up and she's getting threatened. And we had uh, the FBI contacted me because of legitimate threats against me in the laboratory. And just it, the big problem is the permanent defamation that happens online is the worst because, uh, you know, death threats come and go, but, but having a, a permanent article online written about you negatively, uh, is permanent. And that when you're trying to earn the trust of public and trying to do the right thing and you're teaching students, they want a class. I have to go in the class and say, I want you to all go online and look up bad stuff about me and we'll answer questions next session. Because I have to clear it out right in front. And it's something that no scientist should ever have to do because they help the public discussion. <laughs> I, no, I completely agree. This is, this is crazy, right? I mean, you know, as, as you just said, you know, like the, how we normalize the death threats already, you know, like, you know, the occasional death threat, like, well, you know, not how we should be talking. Even. I, I also kind of normalized that because after a couple of them you realize most of them are just online threats and that would never go too far um but you know like we shouldn't even be thinking about this in these terms right, right. and and then it's just absolutely crazy and i agree with you like there's, there's people and often they have a lot of free time right they have a lot of time on their hand uh um creating like fake information about you trying to you know, they're going through like any kind of crazy accusations online and privately or publicly. And, you know, it's, it, it is very difficult to fight that at the same time as you're doing your research and debunking the bad one, it's just an extra burden on you and on your colleagues, on, on your family, on your friends. Sometimes it's, it just shouldn't happen. I mean, when did science become so interesting? You know, like, I, <laughs> you know, some, sometimes it's the question I, I'm asking myself, like, Really, like you, you as a non-scientist, because often coming from non-scientists, right? All these defamatory articles and, and threats. You as a non-scientist are so interested in science that you would go to the length of, of actually threatening someone that's doing something that you disagree with. I mean, I don't know. I, I knew people fought over their favorite football club and rock stars and stuff like this. But scientists, really? That seems excessive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a number of uh, scientists who've worked with uh, public health and during the COVID uh, it, pandemic who now have to walk with uh, security, and uh, n- a number of them. And I don't have to name them; everybody knows who they are. Uh, we had uh, back in 2015, 16, when they were going after me, they had uh, people would post things in the local Craigslist and they would say really bad stuff. Like he's a spouse abuser who's kicking puppies and throwing babies and wood chippers. And they would say things like this with the idea of trying to get some local and unhinged nut to finish the job. And so this is the whole idea was to scare you out of 
doing the right thing. And so how is that working on you? Are you still, um, are you still committed to digging in and correcting false information online and being part of this effort? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's, um, it's something that I ask myself a little bit because at the beginning or let's say mid pandemic, I was really spending a lot of time on this. Um, and you know, I'm not hired to do any of these things as we mentioned before. And I was, you know, trying to consider my work life balance a little bit. Um, and, but thankfully I was also supported in my work and I said that I could take some of my work time to, to, to do that, uh, which was, which was pretty nice, but I really asked myself the question, do, do I want to spend so much time on this considering all the negative effects it can have on me and it has on me mental health and, you know, exha exhaustion as well. Right. Because I'm, I'm almost working double or I was almost working double at the time. Um, and. We know that academics already work a lot <laughs> in the beginning, but I was like, you know, an extra burden. And I was like, wow, I don't know, should I do it? But turns out, you know, I, I'm happy that I'm doing it because I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, I had discussions with some people in my field uh, that really inspired me when I was a PhD student, you know, and, and pushed me to be curious, to, to look at things, to, to, to question, to read articles in other disciplines a lot. And I think this is really what I, you know, want to be a scientist. I want to be someone that's curious and I can, you know, try to push academia as a system, but also science and facts forward uh, as much as I can. Even if it's not my direct expertise, I can always kind of contribute something with other people. And that's what we've done in this case. And I want to keep doing it because I think it's really important. It, the pandemic showed, if anything, that we should continue this effort, I think, because I mean, you know, it's all, it's a complicated thing, but climate change is a much more complicated issue and it's going to come with a lot more debate and a heated debate even. And I think, I hope that the people that have the, the skills to do the debunking will be doing it. So I want to be doing it myself when I can. Well, I couldn't say it better. I mean, you, you really frame this perfectly well and I'm, I hope you have all the courage to stay with it. But maybe the thing that we need to state to put a bow on this is that if more scientists took a role in these conversations, it wouldn't fall on the shoulders of a few. And they can't threaten all of us. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, if you're listening, if you love the science, if you're into this, create some media around this, create a few waves yourself, but also share the work that people are doing and share these stories, share this podcast, share the fact that people are willing to put themselves out there and take a little bit of the heat for the overall good. And, and I guess the last thing I'll leave you with is time will be very kind to you. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> no, you, you look back on this and you go, you know, we were right and we did the right thing. And the funny thing is, is that the people who author work like this, they're going to be fine too. And they're going to profit from books. They're going to profit from websites. They're going to profit from giving keynote speeches at quack conferences. And that is what is so sad about the situation. It really is. It really is. I think you're really like, this is exactly what's happening. And we've seen that, you know, like throughout all the big, like crisis like this, right? Like the MMR vaccine, uh, back in the 2000, you know, the Wakefield story, eventually it was just invited at conferences when he had a keynote scene and he wrote all these books and whatever, and he made a lot of money and his article was retracted. It took whatever, 12 years. Uh, despite a thorough investigation from the BMJ. But yeah, it, it took a lot of effort from a few people. And I think you're very right. And 
I'm sometimes a little bit, you know, maybe upset that no more people actually take this, right? Because they consider, you know, like it's it's not theirs to take because they're just doing their work and and that's it. I'm like, oh, come on, you know, like give give an hour of the week to just look at it. Just just reading, it would be enough. Yeah. Installing the Puppier, uh, you know, uh, extension or something like this on your browser um, to just look at controversies and, and questions on published paper because that's what Puppier does, right? Um, you know, that that would be a lot. That would be a lot. And I think, I don't know about the situation in the US, uh, but I know that a lot of the bad or let's say low quality science that we've seen coming from France during the pandemic, because I'm originally from France, um, it was young researchers that took a stand most of, most of the time, right? It was, it was people that were either PhD students, postdocs, but not with, you know, tenure or like a stable position in which they would get also all the support from their university. It was very young researchers and they took a stand and I wish they didn't have to do that. You know, like professors have nothing to worry about in France. They are hired for life. Uh, just it's, they're tenured, right? It's the, exactly the same kind of thing. So they could have done this, but they, most of them felt like it was not their responsibility. And that's kind of sad, I think. Well, I think that younger faculty and PhD students, I, I preach to them all the time that one way they can differentiate themselves in a very challenging job market is to show evidence of public outreach and find ways to stand up for science in visible ways that only add to your CV. And, and that's what I normally, uh, you know, put on, um, what I normally talk about. Uh, it's also good to note that tenure doesn't protect you from anything, even though we like to say it does. Uh, there's ways that universities can make your appointment a little less exciting. <laughs> And, uh, and so, you know, if you're a researcher and you get, you know, reassigned to teaching some grueling courses that basically steal your research time, it encourages you to look for greener pastures. And, uh, and so there are ways that that happens. And so just, just for what it's note, uh, Lonnie Besanson, I really appreciate your time on this. I hope you keep up to good work. I'm going to keep following you online and amplifying the beautiful stuff you do and best wishes to you and your team going forward. Thank you very much for this and thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for the for the podcast also and thanks for what you've done. Um, I'll look also more into everything that you've done. Um, so thanks a lot for this. Um, it's, it's good to find friendly voices and I think Twitter is a great way to do that as well because we initially met, met there, right? Um, and it's a pretty cool thing to have. So thanks a lot for the opportunity again. Oh, very good. And, and for everybody listening, you now have your marching orders. Get on Twitter and follow good people. Get on Twitter and share good data, good information, quality publications. Counter the false information with kindness and tact. Take the high road. Share the good information. You may never switch the mind of the troll who's posting this particular uh, article about mRNA vaccines and cancer, but you may influence somebody who is trying to find the truth and trying to figure out who to trust. And that may be you, and you may be the pivotal tweet that changes their opinion, gets them vaccinated, could save their life or a life of a loved one. So be involved. So thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast as we head towards 400 episodes and entering the ninth year. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time 
sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.